Fearless Life podcast where we bring you stories of incredible women who are doing fascinating things with their lives. This week on the podcast, I am joined by my really great friend, Nicole Potter. Now, I'm going to start off by being very Canadian and beginning with two apologies. First, I am so sorry that this episode is a week later than it should be. I have been super unwell lately and so have been prioritizing sleep above all else in my life. And um, so I got a little bit behind. I also got a little bit behind because this episode with Nicole is longer than any other episode that we have done. And that is because we got talking about such fascinating topics. So second apology before I go any further. The audio both now, my voice is a bit scratchy, and the audio in the interview isn't the best quality we've ever had. Um, I used an old microphone for it. I didn't have this fancy new headset, which I'm using at the moment for the interview, so I'm sorry it's not the best quality. Usually you'll hear me a little bit fainter asking the questions and then Nicole a bit louder because I obviously prioritized my guest for the audio. That said, it is a really great interview. Nicole is a fascinating human being, and I am so grateful to call her a friend. We talk about all sorts of different things. So first of all, we start talking about sexuality, the gender spectrum, what it's like to come out, all those kinds of different things. And if you're someone like me that doesn't know, didn't know the difference between cisgender, transgender, what all the letters in LGBTQ really stood for, like I 100% was ignorant to that beforehand, Nicole breaks it down in a a way that's really easy to understand. We also talk about her job as a teacher. She works with children that are, well, youth that are a bit more challenged than your average student. So many of them are coming from troubled homes or poverty, and so she talks about what it's like to work with kids that have those kind of behavioral challenges. And it's honestly her experience as a teacher blows my mind. Then we move into talking about diverse reading. So one of the things that I tasked Nicole as a friend with this year was helping me find, identify books that were a bit more diverse. Most of the books on my bookshelf were by white women, and I wanted to broaden my reading list a little bit. So Nicole gives you five incredible examples of books to challenge your diverse reading. And finally, Nicole very bravely shares her experience of losing her father at a really young age. So we talk about what it was like to deal with loss, how you could support a friend or a family member that's go- that goes through a loss like that from her experience. And as always, we end with what it means to Nicole to live a good life. Now, this episode is sponsored by Audible. So if you want to pick up any of these books, a couple of them are available, the ones that Nicole recommends on Audible. So I highly recommend you check it out, especially The Hate You Give. That is 100% on Audible. I listened to it as an audiobook and I loved it. So you can go to audibletrial.com forward slash girl tries life to get your first 30 day free download. They've got over 180,000 titles on Audible. So 100% it's going to change your reading landscape. I know I keep updating you guys with my number, but I am at 60 books for the year. So that's more than a book a week. And it's 100% down to having audiobooks in my life. They are making me a better reader, more informed, and they're allowing me to get in this diverse reading that Nicole and I talk about. So one last disclaimer, guys, before we head over to the episode, this is an explicit episode. I know sometimes I've marked them explicit before and there's just been one or two words that are in there, but we talk about some very adult content. We talk about sexuality and gender and the loss of a loved one and all that kind of stuff. So it's an explicit episode, not for little ears to be around. But 
Without further ado, let's head over to the episode. So thank you, Nicole, for joining our podcast. I'm super pumped to have you here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yes. Uh, For those that aren't here, I am having a drink because I have a child. (laughs) He's exhausting. And Nicole is being very good and having tea. Uh, That is a lie. I'm having wine inside of a mug. So Victoria thinks it's tea. I feel so much. I forgot. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't even have a child for an excuse. I just have a drink because I always have a drink. There you go. So this is my first podcast episode where I have actually had alcohol during the interview so i'm excited it's gonna make it better (laughs) just kidding you're just as good sober (laughs) so you and i have known each other six seven years longer than seven years you think i think like it's about to be my 10 year high school reunion because i'm so i didn't know you in high school you knew me shortly you knew me in my first job after high school though you knew me when i was 18 okay and i'm Oh, wait, yeah. I'm only 26. Maybe my math's off. And you're a teacher. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an English teacher. The first job that we worked at together was at a tea store. Mm-hmm. And I learned all about the magical joys of tea, which yeah. I still get wrong. I boiled your water for <laughs> green tea. And so one of my strongest <laughs> memories... Is it about me yelling something inappropriate? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is how we get into the sex topic. So okay. in case you guys were wondering, this is the podcast where we talk about all the things that make me uncomfortable. Woo-hoo. But because I can do that with Nicole, like no other person, or she brings it out of me. So Nicole and I were working in a tea store, and there was like this bar area um, where you would, you know, you do bink the teas on, but everyone else is sitting out in front of you. And Nicole, as you'll come to know, has a very loud voice. I think that's a lovely way of putting it. Project. You project. And And verbose. I'm pretty sure you said something along the lines of, well, you're a virgin. (laughs) And I swear to God, I saw people turn around and I just ducked under the bar. I was like, "Ah!" Yeah, I think our manager actually came out of her office to shush me at that point. And you were like still on the floor being like, "Mm -mm." (laughs) I was was like red. I could feel the heat on my face. I was very surprised surprised you're so you're so beautiful not that has anything to do with it but I was just like man I and you seemed so much older than me I thought you were so worldly (laughs) I so okay part of that is I was overweight for a very long time and was like super uncomfortable with my body and how this recently tied into uh like general discomfort with my body when I was attempting to breastfeed I remember like so they have these weird, disgusting pumps at the hospital, which, like, have this... You guys are missing some great action from yeah. Victoria's hands yeah. right now. Which are just, like... <laughs> it's like you're being milked like a cow. It's disgusting. And it was the weirdest feeling. And I remember saying to the nurse, I was like, I'm just... I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. Like, it makes me feel gross. I was mm-hmm. like, I don't have that kind of relationship with my breasts. Mm-hmm. And I remember her looking at me like... What kind of relationship <laughs> do you have with your breasts? You might have to cut this out of the podcast later, but did you know that there are people in the kink community who like intentionally buy those milking machines and use them Seriously? in their sexy time play? Yeah, that's a thing. There's like a whole milking fetish thing. Weird. Yeah. Well, I mean, to each their own, but it made <laughs> me feel like I was going to vomit. As oh, I was God. Being. I was like, oh, I feel gross. Oh, I feel gross. Mm-hmm. But if people... 
I mean, it's the whole Shonda Rhimes thing, right? Good for you, not for me. Yes, good for you, not for me. But yeah, yeah, it doesn't super appeal to me either. The whole being milked. At least you had a baby to give your milk to. But I feel like even then, I'd be like, mm mm, no. Well, it just it didn't work out for us, (laughs) and I was totally fine with that. But slightly, we digress slightly. So, (laughs) how old were you when you lost your virginity? Seventeen. Yeah, and that was with like a long term boyfriend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was with that was with my first boyfriend. That was like the very typical high school. Like we were so in love, yeah. and we were both virgins, and then we had sex, and then I was like, oh my god, sex is amazing, and then we just had sex all the time. Yeah. Did you guys wait long? Like from <laughs> no, so, like yeah, from starting to date to uh, having sex. No, we absolutely did not. I think we made it about six weeks, and I spent. Before we'd started dating, I read a lot of romance novels as a child and a young adult, and so I was all like, oh my god, I'm going to wait to be married, and it's going to be really beautiful, which is weird, because I did not come from a conservative family, but I, I think, yeah, we made it six weeks, and I also made a pros and cons list uh, that I got everyone at school to help me create about whether or not we should have sex, yeah. and after making that list, I think I made it about three days, hmm. and then we boned. <laughs> Totally fine. But you've, yeah. like, you're one of the people that I know that has a very, oh, no, open's not the right word, but, like, yeah, open viewpoint, like, to trying different kinds of things in sex and, like, ex- experiencing all kinds of the things. Yeah, man. You don't know what you will like until you try it. Exactly. I feel like yeah. sex and food are two of the areas of your life in which you can always be like, I don't know, I'm going to try it once, and then it's probably going to be a little weird the first time, so then I'm going to try it a second time. Yeah. And then see what still sticks. Have you always had partners that were open to that? Like, were had, did they have the same openness? Or did you have to, like, pull that out of <laughs> um, Say, try this. Try <laughs> this. Try this thing with me. Yeah. Uh, I think largely I'm pretty attracted to people that have that same idea of, like, openness and wanting to try new things. Because when people are kind of... I'm not saying if you're close-minded, you're an asshole, because that would be a very judgy thing to say. But also, I feel like if you're if you're really close-minded, you're probably not going to get along with me. Like, I don't go out with people that don't identify as being, like, feminist, for example. And I don't... So a lot of people that have more, like, puritanical, closed-minded... Oh, puritanical is very judgy. A lot of people that are not as willing to experiment with their sexuality or their gender mm-hmm. or all that stuff are probably not going to be on a date with me anyways. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of it. But I mean, definitely my my second boyfriend uh, was very vanilla when I started dating him. So that was a that was a long process of me being like that was that was kind of the opposite. I'd be like, hey, let's let's try this dirty thing, and he'd be like, I feel like that's degrading to women, and I'd be like, well, let's have a six hour conversation about like femininity and kink, and I'm very charming. I'm fun at po- cocktail parties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's funny because I wouldn't have thought of that individual as being vanilla. Yes. When we started dating, he'd had um, way more partners than me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I think he was at a stage in his life where the type of sex you had with people was like you were drunk at a party and then you like had sex a handful of times and I don't think it always made him feel good. And I don't know about his partners, but I'm guessing it didn't always make them feel good. Mm -hmm. Whereas I'm way more like... Let's connect about our feelings. Let's, like, read mm-hmm. about the history of sex and then try these things. Have you ever, like, so my big issue mm-hmm. with sex is, I guess my struggle with being more open and um, trying different things is a discomfort with my body. I think a lot of that comes from, like, I was overweight for so long and it just, like, it these issues live in my head and I'm still working <laughs> through it. Have you, like, has 
body image ever played into sex for you? Like, made th- made you, like... I'm guessing no. Hmm. No, it's a good question. Not really. Like, the only thing that's kind of happened with me and my body during sex that's ever been a big deal is, like, I have um, chronic pain. Um, and I'm also into pain during sex. And I think that there's a very obvious correlation between those two. Because I think that's a very cool way of me being like, hey, my body puts me through pain every day. But I'm going to, like... First of all, I'm going to see that as a bonus because like in, in, in the like kink community for a lot of people, it's like a big deal to see like to see how much you can take or whatever. And that's not always a, a healthy mindset, but it is kind of like a point of pride. So first of all, my high pain tolerance is like a useful thing for once. <laughs> Second of all, there's like that cool psychology that you're taking something that's like kind of crappy and then you're like oh, re-owning yeah. it. So that's really the only thing I think that's happened with my body because my body image... I've always, I've always been pretty into myself. <laughs> I've always felt pretty good about myself. So, yeah. and if I, and I, I often say that sex is the only time where my brain like shuts up and just lets me do my thing. So even if like in the rest of my life, I've been struggling with whatever else, including body image stuff, it never happens during sex. My brain just like stops talking. The anxiety turns off. Everything just stops. And then I'm super happy. See, my brain does not shut off <laughs> for the most part during sex, which is a really weird thing. I'm on my phone because I'm pulling up something that I want to show you. Have you heard of OMG Yes? OMG Yes, I have. I remember you telling me you were going to write about it. It's that app that like teaches women how to masturbate better, right? Well, so here's the thing. It's about... Yeah, so OMG Yes, I heard about this via Emma Watson of (laughs) Harry Potter. Hermione wants you to masturbate better, Victoria. So, but it's not just about masturbation. It's about like different techniques to enjoy sex better whether on your own or Mm -hmm. with a partner and it got me to thinking like I was single for a very long time (laughs) for a very long time but like interested in sex and like for those that like I know people that are in their 30s and still like have never had a sexual partner and stuff like that and so like I feel like this is a way to own your singleness and Mm -hmm. your sexuality and still enjoy that aspect of your life when like it can seem like such a weird like such a negative thing but so I was you know that I can be a bit of a prude <laughs> what? Um, what and so this was such a like freaked me out at first <laughs> so they show you videos of mm-hmm. like real so okay the background of OMG yes is it's they did research with thousands of women all different ages, ethnicities, backgrounds, socioeconomic, blah, 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 on how they enjoy sex and different things that they do. So it's actually, like, based in research. And Mm -hmm. they're, like, it takes you through all these different techniques, and it's videos with real women talking about these things. And then all of a sudden, they're naked and their vagina's in front of you, and you're actually, (laughs) like, demonstrating these things. And that originally, like, took me for a loop. And then you get over it, and you're like... Oh, that's how it works. But it was also, mm-hmm. that's what other people's bodies look like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, other women's bodies. Yeah. No, I talk I talk about that because I'm queer. And I talk about that with some of the girls that I date sometimes. Where I'm like, man, I can't imagine how alienating that must be if you're a straight woman. Or if you're just someone that's only ever had sex with yourself or with, like, cis men. 
and the only representation you're getting to see of naked bodies is in porn, best case scenario. Or movies where they're all a size zero. Yeah, so yeah. everyone's like super tiny and their labia is really like uniform and tucked in and you're just like... They have no pubic hair. They have no pubic hair. They have no nipple hair. Their body's just like wandering around being like this perfect Barbie body. Like that must jiggle. Be, yeah, that <laughs> must be so stressful. Like I can't imagine how stressful and alienating that must feel. Yeah. So this was kind of like a... Okay, I'm going to show you the try-it-yourself thing. Because <laughs> okay. you, you might laugh. And you <laughs> might find it also fascinating. And I will throw the details in the show notes. But basically, it's like super affordable and it's a lifetime membership. Oh, edging. That's fun. We're going to watch an edging video, guys. Okay, so yep. right now I'm looking at a giant vulva. Yeah, but so it like literally like has you figure out like... Oh, yeah. How, like, is this not like... The most mental thing that you've ever seen. Uh, that okay, that is weird. So when 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 you're touching it, the the screen vagina is actually responding. The screen vulva. The sex yeah. educators would be mad about us calling this a vagina. Uh, see, I wouldn't even. I don't think I even. Ah, well, let me tell you, Victoria. The vulva is everything. The vagina is actually the exactly. canal that things go into or out of. But the vulva is the whole thing. See, I love that there's closed captioning. but yeah so anyways like it and it does kind of tell you eventually like if you're doing it right or wrong or whatever and it's all these different so you can make the screen vaginas orgasm kind of Mm. yeah like it's i find it fascinating anyways that's just a fun fact i thought i would share with you and listeners because (laughs) i found it interesting and yeah also, uh, if you're a queer girl who's never slept with a woman before, maybe this will make you feel less anxious about sleeping with women. Because you can go practice right. on your on your computer first. Right. On your and touchscreen phone. Yeah, and uh, let me just show you all the... So, I'm just going to tell you the different things that they talk about. So, they talk about edging, rhythm, hinting, consistency, surprise, mm-hmm. multiple orgasms. Woohoo! Uh, Best thing about being a woman accenting framing what is accenting uh extra attention to part of emotion part of emotion or part of emotion emotion okay interesting you can you can try it yourself a little extra where it matters most okay so it wants me to do okay so it's like a circle around the clip and then like a boom down the clip kind of yeah I don't know if I would love that, but that's what's cool about bodies. There, yeah. <laughs> We're there all you go. different. Well, hey. and so each of these videos is also showing you a close-up yeah. of a very different yeah. vulva. Vulva. There we go. So again, it's that like, oh, this is what people's bodies look like. Interesting. That's very cool. Anyways, fun fact, this exists. <laughs> I want to piggyback on what you were just talking about. You were talking about cis women. Okay. Yes. So gender, sexuality, all of these things for... Those of us that are unfortunately less informed, <laughs> I don't know what all these things mean. Yeah. And I fear using the wrong terminology, so I feel like I avoid using terminology. Mm-hmm. What's the basics? Okay, the basics. Um, do you want to start with gender first? Yes. Okay. So one of the words that Vic just used is cis, um, which usually it's C-I-S. We hear it in the context of like cisgender. And it sounds really weird to those of us that haven't heard it before, but it has the simplest explanation in the world. It means like, when you were born, the doctor looked at you and you went, yep, you're a girl, or yep, you're a boy, and you grew up your whole life just agreeing with what that doctor said. You're just like, yeah, man. 
I am a girl. I am a boy. That's yeah. super easy. Cool. And then when we hear transgender, trans has kind of become a bit of an umbrella term that lots of identities live underneath. But basically transgender means that when the doctor assigned you a gender at birth, when they said you were going to be a girl or a boy, that didn't fit for you and your experiences. So we have transgender, which is, is typically used when we're referring to people who identify... Okay. See, it's hard. Right? It is hard. Trans. So trans is more like I just don't. I, I don't want to like overwhelm people with like here's my like 500 level gender studies terminology. But I also don't want to say anything that's going to make someone who identifies as trans feel weird because it's a little bit problematic for me as a cis person to be sitting here like defining terms. But yeah. that being said, usually transgender means you don't identify with the gender that you were assigned at birth. Um, and then we also have what's called non-binary. So that means a lot of people don't like this idea of you are male or you are female. You are transgender or you are cisgender. Like those are two very separate things. Mm -hmm. So non-binary would mean I'm, I'm not going to agree with that binary. Maybe I'm agender, so I feel like I have no genders. Or I'm, or I'm gender fluid, so some days I feel more like a girl, some days I feel like more like a boy, and I just get to do whatever feels right, right? And then when you start pulling in the, the biological aspect of it too, you also have um, intersex, which means regardless of what you feel your gender is, um, your body has, is both biologically male and biologically female. Mm -hmm. So it's like a whole, it's a whole thing. And hermaphrodite, is that a thing? That's is like, that a, like a term Yeah, so that's like, that's like an outdated term for intersex. So intersex. that's what we used to okay. use. Um, and now we, now we use intersex. And intersex, like, there's like a huge, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but like a big percentage of the population is technically not 100% male or female. Like there's a lot of variation in our bodies. But intersex we use more when the baby, so when the baby is born and the doctor talks like, and we talk about that, that doctor assigning gender to that baby that's born. Intersex is, t we typically use that when the doctor looks at the baby and they can't tell. They're kind of looking they're like, mm, I can't tell if that's like a small penis or if it's a big clit. And then. And it's funny because I didn't realize that that was a common thing. Yeah. And there's, there's some very outdated uh, science behind it of like measurements that you take. And a lot of doctors, particularly older doctors that aren't um, educated in like intersex, intersex policies will be very much like, okay, parents, you need to pick what your kid's gender is right now. And then we need to like surgically like realign this kid's genitalia so that it fits with our idea of gender. Um, and what a lot of interse intersex activists say now is like, man, what a, what a damaging thing to do. First of all, you're like mutilating my genitals to make sure that I fit into some preconceived preconceived binary of what a vagina or a penis should look like. And for a lot of people who've had genital, who've had like gender reassignment surgery, this is in air quotes because that's not what you would say if you're talking about an intersex person, but when they've had their genitalia modified as an infant, um, a lot of them will grow up and, and not identify with that gender, right? Or so some of them identify as intersex as its own gender. Like they're just kind of like, yeah, I'm intersex. That's what I am. Or some people are like, no, you know, now I identify as trans because you you gave me a penis, but actually I want a vagina or vice versa. Or they're like, you know what? I would have been fine with something that was, was not perfectly a vagina or perfectly a penis because it's like, now it's like compromised my body. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think, so when you talk transgender, I think a lot of people hear that term and they equate it also to sexuality mm -hmm. because it's, 
Yeah. You go. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> our brains are just like, that's like the same night. Yeah. So oh, I wish I wish you guys could see me right now because I actually have a beautiful, uh, what's called a genderbred man that we use as like a very a one-on-one. A genderbred man. A genderbred man. So what it is, if you can picture like a gingerbread man, um, actually, I can't even explain the diagram to you. Okay. <laughs> I'll show you later. But basically, like, we have a couple of different things. So we have our, our gender identity, which is what we feel we identify as, like male, female, agender, whatever. Um, and then we have our gender presentation. So that's the way we look, right? So if you were going to be super femmy, right, you're wearing, like, lots of dresses and heels and makeup. And maybe you're a girl who wears those things. Or maybe you're a boy who wears those things. You're, like, presenting female, right? And then we have our biological sex. So that's when we're talking about vaginas and penises and whatever. And then lastly, we have our sexuality. And then that all of these things, again, we used to think about as being a binary and now we think about as being a spectrum. So before we used to kind of be like, ma, you're either gay or you're straight. And now we have this whole like big, beautiful alphabet where you can pick all these different things depending on what you want to identify as. Because mm-hmm. I, so in one of my former jobs working in community investment, we would, I was exposed to a ton of different nonprofits. And I remember we supported an organization that was LGBTQQ. Mm-hmm. What's the QQ? Queer and questioning. Okay. Um, and then there was a star? Mm-hmm. So the star we used to use, um, it's been used a couple of different ways. Sometimes it's used after the T. Um, because if it's actually super nerdy, uh, when you're like searching for things in like a library database or whatever, if I wanted to look for something about, I don't know, I can't think of a good root word, but let's say you had your root word and then you put a star after it, it would come up with all the, all the different like variations of that word. So it wouldn't just be like rain, rain's a bad example. It wouldn't be like, what am I thinking of? Anyway, basically what the asterisk means is it kind of um, functions as like a little umbrella term. Okay. So it's like trans and then a star. So it's like transgender, trans female, trans male. So yeah. the same thing after the, the Q where it's kind of like a plus sign basically. Okay. Because some people will kind of be like, ah, that alphabet soup. I don't know what the LGBTQTTQIAP thing is, right? Yeah. And then you get some people that are kind of like mad about how long the acronym gets, but then you also have people who are intersex or asexual or pansexual or two-spirit who are like, well, how come I don't get to be in the alphabet? Like, rude. Yeah. Okay. Etiquette. Mm-hmm. Is it inappropriate to ask someone how they identify? No. It's totally not inappropriate. Well, and okay, first of all, I am not like a, I am, I don't speak for all queer people. Yeah. But <laughs> your experience, your my experience, my opinion, the opinion that is largely shared is that it's, it's not, it's not rude to ask people how they identify. It's not rude to ask people what terms they like to use with their self. You know, there's a lot of times that I'll kind of ask people, they're like, oh, like what's your pronoun preference, right? So that means do people use he, him or she, her or they, them? What's inappropriate is a question that would be inappropriate for anyone. So if you were like, oh, you're trans, do you still have a penis? That's really inappropriate. If you would ask, like, you're not going to go up to a straight person and ask them about their penis. You're not going to go up to a straight person and be like, hmm, how often do you have sex, right? So I think... Yeah, so if you put on the hat of, like, what would I be comfortable with someone asking me? Yeah. So just basically... (laughs) Be a normal human being. Basically be a normal okay. human being, right? And think of it like we also talk about... I sound like an idiot here, but, <laughs> I, but I also feel like I'm not alone in this, like, fear of 
saying the wrong thing and insulting someone. No, of course not. Everyone really, like, everyone's really, like, people, by and large, people want to be kind and understanding and open. Right? And I think that's okay. Because I do think for a lot of queer people, it can get exhausting to kind of have to be the resident voice on, like, explaining everything. Uh, Obviously not for me, because I love to hear myself talk and I'm a teacher. (laughs) But for some people. So I think that's fine. And I think... You also have to think about, like, what's the context I'm in right now, right? Is it really important for you to know if that random person in the 7-Eleven identifies as male or female? Probably not. Is it, like, a girl's night with one of your oldest friends? And you kind of want to be like, I mean, like, when did you learn? When did you know you were queer? Right? Because you've known me since I identified as straight. So I wouldn't be offended if you said, Nicole, like, when we met, you thought you were straight. Like, what changed? That's a very different question. So let's move into that question. (laughs) When did you know that? Because I don't think I, I don't think I know that part. So I grew, I was raised by a fairly conservative in a fairly conservative household, um, and my parents were pretty convinced that bisexuality did not exist. And my dad would one. yeah, my dad would literally say like bisexuality doesn't exist. It's a way for people to get attention. It's this. It's that. And I knew that I liked having sex with boys. And I liked kissing boys, so I was just kind of like, oh, well, obviously I'm straight. And I used to also, you know, kiss girls and make out with girls and have extremely intense, like, friendships with girls, which now looking back, I'm like, hmm, that was probably a little bit gay. But I just, I just didn't really grapple with that because there, you know, there's this whole idea in our society that you are, you are one or the other, right? And if, if you're not, if I'm not gay, like, I know I'm not gay, well, because people talk about knowing that they're, like, gay from a young age, mm-hmm. so I feel like maybe bisexuality, for a lot of people, can come later, yeah. is the mm-hmm. sense that I get, because you, you feel, like, you have one strong feeling at the, uh, <laughs> see, now, <laughs> no, it's okay. the mistake that I'm No, it's not, it's not a mistake, that's okay, I don't think it's necessarily about whether, I think, I think because our generation and and the generations before us kind of like the queer rights movement is it's pretty young, right? It's really only been going on for about 50 years, right? Like the Stonewall riots happened in the 60s. And I think one of the things we're prone to do when we're talking about education and when we're talking about activism is that we try to make things like really small and easy to understand. And so if we latch onto this idea that like, oh, everyone's born this way you're born this way, you're super gay, you know, right from the second you were born, then that's something that's really easy for people to understand. And then it makes it harder for you to take people's rights away because you're like, oh, okay, they were born this way. But real life is like much messier than that, right? Um, So for some people, I know a lot of people with stories similar to mine who thought they were straight for a long time. And then as time went on, kind of started to be like, "Mm, I don't know, maybe I'm not straight. Um, And I know people with opposite experiences who spent their whole life thinking they were like a lesbian or they were gay. And then, you know, your world opens up. Maybe it's because then you have a partner who, who's, who's like, you know what, actually I, I don't identify as this gender anymore. And you have to ask yourself like, what does this mean? Or for people that are experimenting, whatever, whatever, right? Like there's, there's lots of people that spend their whole lives thinking they're straight and then it's not that they find out they're bi, they're just like, we talk about com- compulsory heterosexuality is a thing we talk about. So that means like you're just spoon fed this idea that everyone is straight from a very young age. So it's hard to imagine yourself being anything that's n- that's not that, regardless of whether you're bi or queer or pan or the lesbian or whatever. Did you have a coming out moment to your family? <laughs> I did a little bit. 
So once I was, I think I was 19 when I started kind of talking to like a lot of people, like my sister and my partner who was a male at the time um, and a handful of other people, I started kind of being like, well, I don't know, I don't think I'm straight, but I felt kind of weird telling people because I was in like a monogamous relationship with a dude and I kind of thought people would be really judgy if I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm bi. And they'd be like, okay, that's cool. You're just trying to get attention. But then when me and my... I'd like to point out Nicole's wearing a shirt that says bye, bye, bye. <laughs> I am. I definitely am. It was not on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> my other favorite shirt says mo homo on it. And I yeah. wear it all the time. Yeah. So I didn't want to tell people, like I didn't want to tell the masses at that point. Um, and I thought I was going to be with that partner for the rest of my life. So I wasn't really sure what that meant. And I had, and I had a lot of questions about like, what do I do? Should I break up with this guy to go experiment and then get back together with him? Should we open up our relationship? His suggestion was, of course, let's just have threesomes. And then we broke up. And I think one of the things he actually said to me when we broke up was like, oh, well, like, baby, like, now you can go sleep with girls. Like, that'll be nice, right? So by that point, I, I was pretty, like, I was pretty sure that I was gay. And then I hooked up with a couple of girls and I was kind of like, yes. Like, I can officially, which you should not have to do, by the way, young listeners. You shouldn't have to have sex with someone just to assure yourself that, yep, I'm actually attracted to them just to prove a point. But I was still kind of like, yes, okay, I'm definitely, definitely super bi. Uh, I'm going to come out. So I took, <laughs> we went out. We went out to dinner and it was my mom and my sister and brother and me. And I told them that I was queer and my sister had always known. So she was kind of fine with it. My mom was mostly kind of doing the whole like, well, like I'm happy you're happy. I don't care what their genitals look like. Uh, and then my brother had my favorite reaction, which was he had this like really weird, horrified look on his face. And I was like, oh God, I, th I thought my brother was really cool and liberal. And like, maybe he's actually horrified by me. And I was like really upset. And I was like, like buddy, like, like what is it? And he was just like, oh, you know how you get to the end of a horror movie and you find out who the serial killer is? And I was like, uh-huh. He's like, and then you go back to the beginning of the movie and it all starts making sense. All the clues start falling in place. And I was like, yeah. He's like, that's what I'm doing in my head right now. And I was just like, okay. He was like, yeah, you're like, you're like so gay. And I was like, yeah, I am in fact so gay. Yeah. So, and then everything just kind of fell out after that, after mm -hmm. that, like I came out in, in a variety of ways. Some of it was more low key where I'd be like, yeah, I went on a date with a girl, by the way. I can't even remember how I told you. Um, yeah, I think you just said you were dating girls, and I didn't think much of it. Yeah, I think so. I was surrounded by pretty cool liberal people, and then there was a very cool, like, freeing sensation of being properly out for the first time, so I basically would come out to everyone, and I'd be like, that safe way, and I'd be like, this is a dinner for me and my girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted everyone to I drop this yeah. in the Like, everyone What was, know. did you get funny reactions at Safeway? <laughs> <laughs> Probably, probably nothing. I, you know what? I'm actually very lucky. There's been very few people in my immediate life who I've had to deal with like crappy homophobia from. Like there's definitely, particularly with my mom and some of the older members of my family, there was like a big education piece that needed to happen. Um, but most of it was largely well-meaning. Um, and I have a handful of friends who I lost because they were homophobic. Really? Yeah, um, but overall, anyone in my life who I actually love and care about was real great, and I've dealt with, like, I've dealt with crap at, like, work and, like, random people on the street, and, like, people on the internet are always very mean and have lots of opinions, but in real life, I'm pretty lucky. Yeah. So. What are you engaging with on the internet? Just, you know, 
actually engaging with people. There's just like a lot. There's a lot of biphobia out there, right? Yeah. So I don't even have to look very hard. I can just be okay. like on. Because really like you don't have a blog, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's more just like I'll be on Tumblr and they'll be like all these like think pieces being like, if you're bisexual but in a relationship with someone of the opposite gender, you should not be coming to Pride with them. And then you're just like, oh, and like stuff like that. Or like, you know, on OkCupid when I'm like looking for for cute girls and cute non-binary people to date, there'll be lots of like, like, I don't date bisexuals. They always just want to like cheat and have threesomes and go back to men in the end. People (laughs) cray. Yeah. That's what I've discovered. So, okay, on Pride, uh-huh. I've never been to a Pride parade, and I've Victoria. always, so I've always wanted to go, and I will go, uh-huh. but I feel that part of it is I'm like, I don't know the history behind it. Uh-huh. I also, is it appropriate to go if you're not, what are, okay, what are the etiquette? Yeah. And like, what, <laughs> so someone that's attending their first Pride, what should they know? Because it's not just as I understand it, a big fun celebration. It is that, but it's also based in some really tough stuff, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, Yes, cool story about Pride. Uh, It started with what we call the Stonewall Stonewall Riots, um, which happened in the the 60s. And the, the cliff notes of it was that the queer community then and still now faced a lot of bullshit basically or you probably can't say bullshit on your podcast we're talking about sex and all these things <laughs> marked as explicit people yes. are knowing what they're getting into okay they're facing a lot of bullshit from the police particularly in bathhouses and like queer bars any of that stuff um and you have to realize like even though this is only 50 years ago there was just so many laws in place that made homophobia just an okay thing, right? Like, and actually, on that note, even today, there are multiple states in the U.S. where your legal defense can be, if you murder a trans person, like, part of your legal defense can be like, oh, I didn't know they were trans, they scared me. It was like, surprise genitalia. So, like, imagine how bad it was for trans people 60 years ago. So they went to this bar, and they were trying to just exert their their authority and whatever, whatever, um, and there were... A bunch of trans women of color and a bunch of queer people and a bunch of gay people and they basically were just kind of like we are not taking this from the cops anymore and they started a riot they were throwing like bricks and beer bottles and it was very cool I know for I know our society kind of likes to embrace protest that's a little bit kinder and more more gentle and that absolutely has its place but I, th- I am a believer that sometimes you also just need to get shit done, and that, that's what started it, was was basically this big riot against, like, the, the police brutality and kind of being like, no, we're not, we're not putting up with this. And so Pride was kind of like a response to that, right? We do it on that same date to kind of... I didn't realize it was... Okay. Yeah, it was yeah. a big thing. It was a big thing. It's very cool. Um, so it's September... Uh, it's June. I think... Well, I can't remember what the day of the Stonewall riots were. I think it's June. Um, so then, but Calgary does a different... Pride date then. Okay, so yeah, that so confuses me. And, okay. Yeah, here's yeah, yeah. the thing about modern pride. Uh, it's become fairly commercial. Uh, there's a lot of capitalism with it. So depending on uh, how extreme you are with your activism, um, a lot of a lot of queer people now, a lot of people that are kind of like, there's this saying like, not gays and happy, but queers and fuck you. A lot of the people that align more with that side of activism don't love what pride's turned into because it's so much about like, corporations and like buying things and it ties into kind of what you were asking about like what's the etiquette of pride and what's appropriate for pride um a lot of people have tried to make pride 
very, very accessible and safe for straight people to just kind of be like, kind of this idea of like assimilation, right? This whole like, come to pride. We're not like big and scary and mean. We're like, we're just like you. Which for some people is beneficial. And for some people they're kind of like, I don't want to be just like you. Like I'm queer and that's a cool part of my identity. Yeah, I think the big thing about etiquette... pride in your identity. I don't want to have pride in my identity, yeah. I think for me, the biggest thing about etiquette is when you come to pride as a straight person, first of all, don't be there being, like, hateful. Because, uh, obviously, <laughs> not that I would think you would, Victoria. Uh, second of all, like, don't treat it like a zoo. Like, don't wander around doing the things we just talked about not doing. Being like, hey, I see you're dressed as a drag queen. What does that mean about your penis? And thirdly, there is a big difference between going to Pride as a spectator and supporting Pride. So like cheering on the parade, uh, giving your money to queer vendors, showing your queer friends and family that you're there for them and they support them, and being someone who's trying to take over a space in Pride. So I hear from a lot of straight people when they're first trying to figure out their feelings about Pride, they kind of do the whole like, well, I want to march in the parade. I'm like, okay, but like, why? I don't know. I just want to show gay people that I support them. And I'm like, okay, but from the the sidelines, the parades for them, you can absolutely show your support for gay people, but you should do it by cheering at the sidelines. Like, I feel like if you're in the parade, you need to have like a demonstrated history of giving your like time and money and education to support queer people. But... How do you feel about politicians going? Because that just seems to be the... You're making a face. I'm making a face. I'm making a face because I am kind of one of those not gays and happy, but queers and fuck you people. So I really don't love politicians being in pride unless they have a very, very strong history of not just being like tolerant of their LGBTQ constituents. in support of... Yeah. And like not even just voting. You're voting in support, but you're also bringing out new bills to protect your constituents and you're like and I just don't think we see a ton of that in Canada um or in a lot of places and yeah I just I don't I don't love it and I I think but I I also don't want to like what if you were what if you were someone that was queer and was also part of the government like I also don't want to tell you that you can't be there and I do think it's nice because it's like it's pretty unheard of but I mean in the pride parade this year for example the NDP party marched but uh, Wild Rose and PC both refused. So I think that's also, I guess, I think it's also probably important to know that about your parties. Like, But would you want them marching if it's not their belief? That's the thing, right? Yeah, Yeah, like I wouldn't want PC or Wild Rose voting because they don't have a good history of being supportive of the LGBT community. And I kind of enjoy that they didn't march because now I have something I can put my finger on when people are like, what, they're not homophobic. Like I can be like, look at this super easy thing. To understand that they didn't do, but, yeah, you know. I feel like for your average, like, chill 15-year-old teen who is queer, it would probably be very important and affirming for politicians to march in pride. Mm -hmm. So, speaking of Mm 15-year-olds, you are a teacher Mm -hmm. for junior high, high school students. So, you deal specifically with youth that have behavioral issues yeah you call it bla what does that stand for stands uh for behavior and learning assistance okay so you deal with small classes and the the way i've understood it Mm -hmm. from your current job is that like a lot of your students are in gangs or foster care or come Mm -hmm. from violent like they're vulnerable populations Mm -hmm. essentially how 
how does that change the support that you offer them? Because I think most of us think, well, there's 30 kids in a class, you read from a textbook, you mm-hmm. do this. Mm-hmm. How is it different with you in your class? So I guess the number one thing that's different, and there's, there's a whole bunch of different BLA programs. I actually work at a program that's the most specialized of all BLA programs. So it's for kids who've already... Their needs are already not being met in the mainstream BLA program. So they've been expelled multiple times. They're like, they just don't, they're not able to function there. So then they come to our school. So the number one thing that you look at is you, you kind of like change your mind about what school should be. Cause school as we see it right now already doesn't work for the majority of the population, right? This idea of having, and it's not just 30 kids anymore. I, there was a school in Edmonton that had 56 kids in one of their diploma classes at the one beginning teacher. of this. One teacher. 56 kids. Ugh. They eventually were like, maybe 56 is ridiculous. Let's split it up. I thought 30 was ridiculous. No, when I was doing my APT, like when I was doing my practicum teaching, I had between 41 to 45 kids in all of my high school classes. And that's like the norm now. So anyway, it already doesn't work. It already doesn't work to have 45 kids, to have them in rows, to having them like sitting down and shutting up and regurgitating information that doesn't have a real life context. Like that already doesn't work for so many kids, right? But for our kids, we kind of take it that next step further. And instead of focusing on um, academics, what our focus is on teaching um, emotional regulation, basically. I don't want to say that to mean that like my kids are not capable of academic work because they absolutely are. BLA kids, um, they often have, in addition to having a coding, which basically means like documented proof that you have this thing, in addition to having the behavior disorder, um, a lot of the kids also have learning disabilities and they also have mental health challenges, mental health issues. But their IQs are usually average or above average. Like we don't usually have kids with like a, a lot of cognitive issues. So you have kids that are like super smart, but they've just missed a lot of foundational stuff because they've been kicked out of class so often or their behavior has prevented them from doing that. But yes, what we, what we do, this is a big, it's a big explanation to get into it, is that like when my kids come into my class, the first thing we're doing is not sit down and open your textbook. The first thing my kids do when they come in is they chart their mood. So we have a little space on the wall and there's like red, green, yellow, and blue, which are the four zones. So there's like green is happy, ready to learn. Yellow is kind of like silly, hyper anxious. And blue is kind of like sad, tired, depressed, moving slowly. And red is like, I'm going to throw a chair at you. <laughs> um, so and you're not kidding when you say this. No, no, I am not. I often get chairs and desks thrown at me. They are very easy to throw when you're in junior high and you're big. So yeah, that's like the first thing the kids do. They come in and they chart their mood and then I know where they're at. And then we do something called the HALT program at my school. Um, so that stands for hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and in pain. Um, so we make sure that all of those needs are being met with the kids. So you're not teaching a hungry kid. You're, you, you have the free breakfast and you have snacks and you're, a lot of my kids have been sleeping on the street the night before. So you go through this with them to see where their basic needs are at. And then you meet that. And all of this happens before... And, and I'm also like, I get to say hi to every single kid at the school um, every day because all the teachers stand at the, the entryway to the school. And so every single teacher gets to say hi to every single kid. And so then my kids come in, whatever, chart their mood, give them food, whatever. And then we kind of like sit down and basically shoot the shit for like 10, 15 minutes where we kind of talk about what we did last night. Um, and when that happens, I don't really have my teacher hat on. So if they're telling me stories that are maybe a little bit inappropriate, I'm not really sitting there being like, that's inappropriate. I'm like, oh my God. And then what happened? <laughs> Which is, it 
has a purpose, right? It's how you build find trust out. and mm-hmm. yeah. build trust. It's how you find out about what's actually going on in their home life because their home lives are usually pretty intense. <laughs> so all of that happens in like the first whatever half hour of our day. And then you start to think about academics. And basically when you're talking about BLA or when you're talking about any type of specialized programming, stuff that you would consider being second nature for your average kid, like the ability to sit down at your desk quietly, pick up a book and open it to the page that we're working on. That's a skill that needs to be explicitly taught. Like you, you rehearse that you go over that every single day because for these kids, that skill isn't coming naturally to them. And you don't expect them to sit at a tiny rigid little desk. You have like yoga balls and fidgets and all this. I feel like I've been talking for a really long time. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. okay. I, would, I, I always say that with my kids, I'm like the same that parents are with newborn babies where I could just talk about it for like 70 hours and I would find myself so fascinating and amusing. I'm finding it very interesting. Okay. So I'm just, I just want to clarify for you because for the listeners earlier, Nicole said to me, like you have real people on your podcast that do real things. You do do a real thing. (laughs) This is a thing like your job is so fascinating to me and interesting because and it scares so many people. Mm-hmm. Like you saying to me a few months ago or whatever, you know, I was threatened with a knife by my <laughs> student. And in my head, I'm like, I would quit. <laughs> and no, but in all yeah. seriousness, like the fact that those kids who are coming from such intense and difficult environments mm-hmm. that they have someone like you mm-hmm. is an extraordinary thing. So I want to acknowledge you in this yeah. moment because it's... It is a big thing. Thanks. I think, I think what's, I think the secret about BLA is that the kids are really freaking great. They're very cool if you're the right person. Like if you're someone that needs like a lot of control and you like to have your authority and you like like order and organization, you will not like my kids. Like you will not. I think you like teaching if that's your, but like yeah. <laughs> kids. But you know, there's a lot of teachers that teach because they're very passionate about their subject matter and they want to share that subject matter with their kids. And they want to kind of be like that dead poet society type of teacher. Like, Oh, captain, my captain, you want to inspire your kids, but you need those kids were actors. Yeah. Like, <laughs> they were actors. But those are also like AP kids, right? Those are kids in high school taking like advanced placement English, right? Those are not, those are not my types of kids, right? So my kids, my kids are like, they're so, you just kind of have to retrain your brain. So like, for example, if I'm handing out like granola bars to my kids, not a single kid is just going to take that one granola bar and be done. Every single kid is going to ask me for one more or for two more. Or if I'm not paying attention, they're going to put the entire box in their backpack for later. And a lot of teachers, when that first happens to them, are very much like, oh my god, kids of this generation, they're just like, so like selfish, they always want more, they always want more. And you just kind of have to retrain your brain to be like, okay, well, I mean, this is a kid that has no clue where their next meal is coming from. So they're actually very resourceful. They are making sure that they have enough food, not just for now, but for later. Or um, like when you look at the way one of the one of the things BLA kids often have in common is that they're very, very good at making people mad. It's part of, it's part of the diagnosis that they like to annoy people and they're very successful at it. And that's adults, that's authority figures, but it's also their friends and it's also their peer group. Like they are so, oh, they're so good. And they're so good at knowing whatever your weak point is. Like they will watch you and they will study you and they will figure out like, what is it that'll piss her off? And then they will poke it. 
right? And if you're... Your kids do this to you all the oh, time. Oh, my kids do this to me all the time. But you just have to be like, man, these kids are so emotionally intelligent. Like, that's, that's amazing to be able to study an adult as a teenager and figure this stuff out about them. Yeah, I always tell my kids at the beginning of the year that my chicken wings are how you can tell I'm getting annoyed. So that's when I put my hands on my hips. So you can tell I'm getting annoyed. Um, so the kids will always, if, I, if they're starting to be a pain in the butt, I'll like get an arm up and they'll be like, Miss Potter, Miss P, your chicken wings, your chicken wings are coming out. But they do it. My kids are pretty good. Like I have pretty, my, my skill as a teacher is that I'm able to build relationships with the kids because I think they can tell that I actually really deeply love them and I care about them and I'm not putting on an act. And so that's kind of what I build with them. So interestingly, actually for them, when they're, when they're not just trying to annoy me, because when they're trying to annoy me, they're just being brats, right? They're just kind of like poking the bear. But when they're trying to actually upset me and make me mad, what they go for is homophobic language. So that's when they'll pull that out because they know that that's my line. That's where I'm like, nope, this is no longer appropriate. We're done. Like you need to go take a reset. You need to, you can't be in my classroom and be using that kind of language. Like that's not fair. So I know that you wanted to be a teacher for a long time. Mm-hmm. A, where did that come from? B, how did you decide that this was the stream you wanted to work in in teaching? I have no clue where it came from. My parents say that even when I was like six years old, I would make my little sister and brother play school with me to the point where I would like give them tests and then mark the tests afterwards. Who was the better student? Uh, definitely my sister. <laughs> My brother probably prepared me very well for BLA because he'd always, like, throw the test at me and, like, lead rebellions. (laughs) I don't know. Like, I I had good teachers, but the first elementary school I went to was in, like, a pretty rough area of the city. It's not like I was, like, in the world's most amazing school right out the gate. You said you had your backpack knifed? I did. Yeah, it was a back girl backpack. I was in grade two. It was stolen from me and knifed. It was very traumatic. Um, and I had good teachers there, like, don't get me wrong, like, I loved them, but it wasn't, like, it wasn't a dead poet society moment, so I don't know where it came from. I wanted to, for a long time, I wanted to teach elementary, uh, which is laughable now, because I would murder elementary students, they are very needy, and, like, you have to care about stupid things, and they're whiny, and if I get hired as an elementary teacher later, just kidding, I love elementary students. <laughs> but it's just, my skill is more like the asshole, angry, sarcastic teenagers. And I did my first, so I did three practicums at at the university. The first one was at a strategy site. So that's for kids with learning disabilities. And they're uh, in in Edmonton where I teach. You can have strategy programs, which is like one classroom inside a larger school. Or you can have strategy sites, which is a whole school where everyone is coded with a learning disorder. So I was at one of those places. And that was when I was like, oh, special needs is what I want to do. Because you have to, like, you have to be patient you have to be chill. You have to be able to think on your feet. You have to be able to form relationships with kids that are not easy to form relationships with, all of which, like I said, that's kind of my skill set. And the kids that I bonded with the most in that program were the kids that were also coded with behavior. And then my second one was um, at a school in Calgary, actually, which is like a, like a learning through the arts high school. And the kids were so wonderful. Like, oh my God, I got to teach AP English. And we got to do all these units about like gender and sexuality and they were so smart and they all had like undercuts and they wanted my Tumblr page and it was amazing, but they, like, they did not need me. Like they didn't need me at all. I was like, any teacher could be here. And 
you would be getting the same amount out of this. Like there were definitely, there were nice moments. Like there were kids, like a couple of the kids that I identified as trans were really like, oh my God, this is like the first time I felt like safe in a class. Like, like there were still moments that made me be like, oh yeah, this is beautiful, I love teaching. But overall I was like, okay, I'm not needed. And then my third practicum was at a BLA site and that's when I was like, yup. I love it because it's just so fun. Like I just, I do, I love the kids. You're never bored. You like look up and it's 3.30. Your whole day has gone by and you always have to be creative. You always have to be like, like the thing about behavior that I think is hard for some people to understand is that all behavior has a function. Kids aren't acting out because it's fun. It doesn't make their life better. It doesn't bring them joy. It alienates them and it feels crappy. Like everyone wants to be good and everyone wants to be loved. And so when you have a kid who's acting out, it's like a very cool mystery because you have to be able to look at that and figure out, okay, so what's happening? We talk about the ABCs. So what was the antecedent? What was the thing that was happening? Right before. Right before. And then what was the behavior? So what were they doing? And then what was the consequence of that behavior? So if I have a kid, for example, that I feel like was sitting there working quietly and then all of a sudden... He's like ripping up his paper and setting things on fire. And you're just like, oh my God, what happened? You do that chart and you're like, okay, interesting. So the antecedent was that we started math. And then the behavior was that he destroyed his work. And then the, um, the consequence was that I removed him from the class because I can't have someone ripping things up and setting it on fire. So I remove him from the class or I remove him from that event, right? Is so that a kid frustrated that they can't understand it? Absolutely it is, right? But if you don't sit there and think about that... You're like, that kid's just an asshole. That, really, they're frustrated with themselves. They're frustrated with themselves, right? Or you, you right miss there, that it's... You, when you chart it over... When you're, when you're with behavior kids all the time, sometimes you're just like... You're just like, oh, they're just frustrated with schoolwork. But then if you're charting this every day, you're like... Oh, it's math. They're frustrated with math or it's this unit or it's this student or it's, you know, the sound of the bell ringing or it's, there's so, there's so many things, right? So you have to be able to be good at like figuring out secret emotions and also mysteries. And I'm great with secret emotions. That's awesome. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. You okay. talked about for this role, sort of retraining your brain a mm -hmm. little bit and one of the ways that I am trying to retrain my brain mm -hmm. is in diverse reading. Yes. So I realized when I looked at my bookshelf that I read a lot of white women. Mm -hmm. There are white men on there as well. But mostly <laughs> like the things that I would typically, my go-tos were white women. Mm -hmm. And you're, you've always been my go-to recently for like, I want to mix it up a little bit. And you don't know what you don't know, right? Mm -hmm. So you are... Big advocate for diverse reading yeah. and diverse content and all that kind of stuff. If someone is just starting out, what are the kind of like five or more, we'll link mm -hmm. to all of them in the show notes, <laughs> things that you would, like books, graphic novels, whatever you would recommend yeah. to get people a little out of their white yeah. zone. Well, for the little caveat I would say before I give my recommendations is that I think a lot of the time when people hear this like diverse reading, they're just suddenly like, oh my God, I don't want to read about like a queer black woman in Jamaica who's like turning tricks inside of a hotel. Like that's not what I like to read, which by the way is from an amazing book called Here Comes the Sun. But if you're a dude who's normally reading like spy thrillers set in Russia, you'd be like, why would I go out of my way to yeah. read that? And even though there's a lot of good answers about why you'd go out of your way to read yeah. that, about like empathy and compassion or whatever, you're still not going to. You're yeah. still going so I would recommend that you look at what you like to read and then 
just Google it because you're going to find eight bazillion listicles of like diverse and then insert, you know, your, your yeah, thing here. Yeah. So, so do that. Cause if you already like graphic novels, there's a bunch of graphic novels or like, like if you already like horror novels, did you know, like, just like with the movies, Japan has the best horror movies. Japan also has some of the best horror novels. So go check that out. But yes, actual, actual books that I have read and loved in the last year. The Hate You Give was one. Oh my god, absolutely. Yes, okay, The Hate You Give, guys, it's so good. It's so good. Okay, it's a young adult novel, um, and everyone should be reading more young adult novels because I actually think that young adult novels do a way better job than adult novels of talking about... Issues. Real issues, yeah, social issues, right? Like a lot of, a lot of adult literary stuff is like, oh, I'm this white man in my 40s and I'm just having all these weird feelings so I'm just going to cheat on my wife and then that's what the whole novel is, right? Whereas young adult novels actually talk about the issues. So The Hate You Give is kind of loosely based on the Black Lives Matter movement. So it's about this young black girl called Star who's driving home from a party with a friend of hers who's also black and they're pulled over by the cops and he, he gets shot by the cop and he dies. Which is a not a spoiler. It's not a spoiler. Chapter <laughs> happens in the first chapter. I cried a lot. It's very heartbreaking, and that is unfortunately a very familiar narrative right now. We are hearing just, and it's always happened, but it feels like it's been particularly bad the last couple of years about cops shooting unarmed black men. It's just it's happening all the time. So this book is kind of about the ramifications of that for this young girl, and I think what's very powerful about this book is that mm, it goes it, it doesn't it doesn't simplify the issue for you I know when we think about young adult books we think about them being like very like sugar-coated and easy but this one definitely doesn't it recognizes that it's a diverse issue and it doesn't it doesn't spend the whole time being like well, you know, black young men, gangbangers, they're the enemy. And it also doesn't spend the whole time being like, ah, white people, the worst, the enemy. Well, and because she does straddle two worlds. Mm-hmm. Like, she goes to a predominantly white school. Mm-hmm. Her uncle's a cop. But lives in a black community. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, it does a great job of that. Yeah. yeah. So that's one of them. And also, you and me both listened to it on Audible, Victoria. And it has very good narration. It's by one of my favorite narrators. Yeah. So yeah, I'd recommend that one for sure. If you like, if you care about activism and race and class, I think that's what's up with that one. Um, one of my other favorite ones that I'm recommending to everyone right now is called The Outside Circle by Patty Labucan Benson, I think. I might have to double check that. And it is a graphic novel. Uh, it's Canadian. It's actually written by an Edmontonian, and I believe the illustrators from Edmonton as well. Uh, and it's about these two young Aboriginal brothers growing up in Edmonton on like 118th Ave. And it's, it's all about the older brother going to prison and the younger brother starting to kind of get pulled into that gang life. Again, I think when you hear me start to tell that you're like, oh my God, we've all read that story before. But the very, the very cool thing about this that we don't always get to see is that it's not, it's not tragedy porn. It's not like, oh my god, these Aboriginal boys and the gangs and the foster care and the blah 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 and everything's sad and terrible. Like it's actually ultimately a, a story about like hope and reconciliation and like resiliency. And it's written by like an Aboriginal author. It's 
And it's based on a real rehabilitation program in Edmonton, which I it thought is. as a, someone in the nonprofit space, I was like, mm-hmm. this is amazing. Yes. Like, yeah. And it does a very good job of like contextualizing it in, in history, right? It talks about the 60s scoop and residential schools and all these things that we never, ever learn about as Canadians. And when I, when I give this novel to my kids... My kids, they grow up on 118th Ave. They run with people in those gangs. They're not only like, I see myself in their, this story. They're like, I've been on that street in this exact situation. They can relate like no other. Yeah. yeah. And yes, you are right. It is Patty Labucon Benson. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's and the doing. artwork was incredible. Oh, so gorgeous. Yeah. So that's beautiful. Like, that was the first graphic novel I've ever read. Really? Was it? Yeah. Oh my God. Like... I used to read Archie comics, but (laughs) this is my first graphic novel, and as a result, I've read a bunch of graphic novels this year, so thank you. Yes, because it's very literary, right? Like, it's, I think, yeah, I think a lot of people think that graphic novels don't really have much to say, but they absolutely do. Yeah. Okay, another excellent Canadian diverse book that I would recommend is called Bottle Rocket Hearts by Zoe Whittle. She is a Canadian author who primarily kind of writes... Actually, you guys might recognize her, 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 her name because she just wrote... She just wrote her first, like, non-queer, non-queer novel. And it was, like, very literate. The best kind of people about, like, a teacher accused of sexual assault and everything it did to his, to his community and blah, blah, blah. And it got nominated for a bunch of like best books of the year. And um, it was a Scotiabank finalist and whatever. But it wasn't as good as her other books, which are super gay. So Bottle Rocket Hearts is about Quebec in the 90s, kind of during that whole like the like Quebec referendum that was happening. And so it's it's very 90s. It's, It's got all the like all these like riots and like AIDS is still a thing and there's graffiti everywhere and blah, blah. Um, and it's all about this, this woman kind of coming, coming to terms with her, coming to terms with her, her sexuality at the same time as coming to terms, like understanding what it means to be Canadian and what her politics are and how that diverges from her parents' politics. And if you're like me, if you're like a baby, that was a whole chunk of Canada's history that I really didn't know anything about. Like I knew and that was other thing. You were born in the 90s. I was. You? I was. So I that think I was thing? like. That's a thing? Yeah. I was like, I think I was five when this was happening. So like, I knew that it happened in that it was like, like we always joke about like Quebec wanting to separate, but I definitely didn't know that the, the referendum vote was that, that close. Like it was basically 50, 50. <laughs> and I didn't ever really think about what it would be like to be in that situation, to be somewhere that divided. And I think it's interesting to read books like that right now when you're thinking about what it's like to live in, like, Trump's America. Because I think it's, like, as Canadians, we're all, like, pretty horrified and we're like, bah, can you imagine? But if you were actually there and there were, you knew that many people in your, in your immediate community had voted for Trump, like, how scary. And this is, like, a kind of a Canadian version of that, right? Except the answer is not, it was not, like, Trump versus Hillary. It was, like, two fairly similar things. But anyways, it's very cool. And if you get into that, that's one of her, I think it's her first one. It's definitely one of her earlier ones. But everything she writes is so great and so gay. Like, there's always people that are super gay and in, like, poly relationships and, like, riding their bikes and spray painting their Doc Martens. And if you if you want kind of, like, a slice of young queer literature, this would be a really good kind of go-to one. I just want to kind of piggyback for a second on what you were saying about, like, 
when you grew up, this was really, you were really mm-hmm. young when this happened, you mm-hmm. didn't know about it. Uh, and because we're talking about diversity, so I'm, residential schools was mm-hmm. something that I was like, literally had a moment a few years ago of like, how did I not know this? Mm-hmm. How did I genuinely never learn this in school mm-hmm. and not know it and not appreciate it? And then I think I did the research and it was like, oh, because the last residential school was still open when I was in school. 96. Yeah, it was when the last residential school closed. So that's why I do think it's really important to sort of re-educate yourself and Mm -hmm. refocus on finding diverse reading and information Mm -hmm. articles or all this kind of things because I always say you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And if we keep going with the sort of mind frame that we grew up with, we're going to mm-hmm. live very limited lives. Absolutely. I think and uh, from a teacher's perspective, uh, the Alberta Program of Studies is getting redone. So in 2020, it'll be redone and we are going to have a whole like, greater chunk about residential schools in the social studies program. But yeah, they just they did a study recently that showed that only one out of four adult Canadians knew what residential schools were. So it's just... It's just pretty horrifying. I wonder why racism is rampant. Right? Why we have no appreciation for what people went through. Yeah, like I like generations a lot of generations went through. Yeah, and a lot of my kids in in the BLA programs, and and this isn't true for all BLA programs, but a lot of my kids were Aboriginal, and there's definitely messed up white kids, <laughs> messed up kids of all races, whatever. But you'll get a lot of people that will kind of hear that stat and glom onto it as like a ah. Well, that's because, like, Aboriginal kids are the worst. And you're like, mm, no, it's because we as a society have, like, systemically, like, just created mass genocide. And now we're just pretending that it didn't happen. Like, I have kids whose parents, not even grandparents, parents were residential school survivors. And then even the kids that have, like, grandparents that were residential school survivors, it's like, okay, so then only one generation removed, you have both grandparents were like were survivors of hor- horrific like sexual assaults were removed from their family never got the chance to see how to parent and that's that's one generation away from where my kid was at right mm-hmm. so it's anyway <laughs> yeah. i get mad for our for our non-fiction fans one of the best memoirs i read was called dirty river um, and then the subtitle of it is a queer femme of color dreaming her way home but it's a very cool memoir. I don't know if you're into memoirs. I'm just kind of getting into them now. But it's a... Oh, it's also Canadian. Maybe that's my theme. Maybe everything's just going to be Canadian. Totally fine. It's about this, like, queer femme, and she's... She moves to Canada. She kind of, like, escapes to Toronto. And it's all about her and her partner, who's male. And both of them are, like, abuse survivors. And both of them are trying to, like again, move to Toronto and live that, like, peak queer existence, you know, where you're poor and you're all, like, sharing, like, a garden and you're, like, high all the time and whatever, but they're also, like, um... Sharing a garden's a thing? Yeah. Okay. You know, how, like, queer people love to garden. It's, like, a thing. <laughs> it's, like, a... It's a pretty great stereotype for stereotypes, okay. <laughs> though. Um, I think because there's so much, like, crossover. Like, people always assume I'm vegan. I just have that look. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a thing because like community gardens and like in the queer community that I the queer community the whole like community piece is important, right? Yeah. So you have a lot of community gardens, and community dinners, and if you're passionate about one thing, you often become passionate about many things. Yeah, but anyway, they're actually they're they're both kind of repeating unhealthy patterns from their past. So it's she's all it's also kind of becomes like an abusive relationship. 
So I think it's, I think it's really important when we talk about, I think that while there is an overabundance of literature that focuses on kind of women being murdered by men, I think it's also important to look at like narratives that kind of go beyond that and like abuse in queer relationships is very undocumented and undiscussed and that 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 feeling of shame where you like wouldn't want to talk about being in an abusive relationship um i think is intensely magnified in queer relationships because you don't want to be the bad queer you don't want to be the one where everyone's gonna be like well that's why the queers shouldn't be in a relationship. They're just like these horrible people to each other. Except they're just like <laughs> everybody. Yeah, exactly. So it talks about that, and it's it's and it's, it talks a lot about like parents and race and class, and it's just it's very cool and it's very intensely readable. I think if you're new to memoirs, um, this is a good one to read because it just kind of feels like you're sitting down with someone and she's just telling you about her like crazy fucking life, and you're just like, oh my god, this is so cool. Yeah. Um, and then it's easier to get into maybe other memoirs that aren't quite as, I don't know the right word for that. So this kind of ties in to, this kind of ties into The Hate That You Give. There's a book called Citizen by Claudia Rakin, which I think is probably one of the most important books that has been published in the last 10 years. It's so now we're now we're moving genre again a little bit. Now we've had like a young adult in a memoir. This one's a little bit more in a graphic novel. This one's a little bit more poetry focused. Um, but it's not poetry like when we think about like Ode to a Grecian Urn where it's all rhyming. It's like very modern poetry and there's like it's also the whole novel is like little bits of poems, but then it's also images, but then it's also like short stories almost like there's like whole paragraphs and it's all about kind of racial aggression in the the 21st century right and it's talking about everything from like serena williams to like sh- like shoot police police what do we call that officer yeah but there's a there's a special term i can't remember what it is whatever um it's also talking about police shootings so it's very very cool and it's very heavy it's one of those books that like everybody should read but also you you just kind of need to sit with it so this is more if you're someone that you don't necessarily want to sit down and read like a book and be taken to another place. You want something that's going to kind of help you do that, that, that work where you're getting inside someone's head and you're thinking about stuff you've never thought about before. And this is a cool book. I think if you're someone that has always thought you've hated poetry, because I always thought I hated poetry and it turns out I actually love poetry and some of the best work I've read in the last couple of years particularly work around race and gender and sexuality has been through poetry. So this isn't, this is cool poetry because it's very modern and also it's not particularly hard to understand. There's like the occasional section where you're like, what the fuck does that mean? For the most part, it's pretty straightforward. You know what it's saying and then you just kind of sit with those feelings. So I think everybody should read this book and it, it is just like, it's awesome. It's real good. It's real, real good. I think that was five. Was that five? Are we there? We did it. I think so. Yes. You should, you should, I should have a blog because what I really want is each person to to tell me what they normally read and I can be like, here's the perfect book for you because I have so many perfect books. Yeah. Okay. So the last kind of thing that we're going to touch on, Mm -hmm. um, because we've been talking for a while. You talked about starting this list when 
your dad passed away. Yes. So, your dad passed away when you're, how old were you? Was this three years? Uh, this was four, five years ago. I was 22. We were 18, 20, and 22 when my dad died. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and it, it felt from an outsider's perspective that it happened very quickly for you. He knew yes. about it for some time. You did not. Yeah. So, um, my dad was an alcoholic and he'd been t- about a year and a half before he died. Um, he was kind of told, Kate, like you need to, you need to stop drinking or you're going to die. Um, so we did, but at that time when he told us that he was sober and when, when he told us kind of like, you know, like this is what the doctors are saying and this is the choice that I need to make. It came out that he'd actually known for a while, him and my mom had known for a while that that was, that was a concern with his lifestyle and the way he was going. So that was something that was pretty hard to deal with. Um, but he was sober for a year and a half, which was very cool and not easy. But at the, at the end of that year and a half, um, he was starting to kind of get sicker and sicker and he went and saw the liver clinic and they said that he needed a liver transplant. Um, and normally this is like a year and a half, two year process. So the implication there is that you've got like a year, year and a half, two years of someone kind of getting sick and you're trying to get them a transplant and whatever. Um, but he actually died three weeks later. Um, he got too sick, too fast, and a cool thing about liver transplants in Alberta, you actually can't have one if you're an addict or an alcoholic. The only way you are able to have one is if you go through the ADAC programming, because the theory is if we give you a nice new liver, you'll just destroy it the same way you did the first one, which I'm guessing you can tell from my tone, I think is a really shitty way to treat human beings. Well, so <laughs> but... that particular, I find that completely bullshit. So my dad had a kidney transplant. Yeah. He was in the scenario of having a kidney transplant because he had damaged his body through eating. Yeah. And diabetes. And I can tell you that getting his kidney transplant, he did not treat his body any differently. Yeah. And so it shouldn't be any, like, food is as much of an addiction as alcohol or anything Mm -hmm. else. And so that should not be any different. Yeah. We wouldn't. Dare, dare dream of doing that to a kidney patient so it shouldn't happen to liver patient. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's pretty reprehensible. And I also think it's... It's shaming someone. It's shaming. It is. It's shaming someone. And it's also just kind of weird that they're kind of like, oh, well, there's this one program you need to do. And if you look at the statistics, a lot of people do relapse after liver, like when they're sober. Like not everyone can stay sober forever. So it's like, so you already have a program that you know doesn't have a hundred percent success rate, but everyone has to do that one program. And it doesn't like if my dad, my dad tried to complete that program once, once they said you need a liver transplant, he got through like a week and a half of it before he was too sick. But it's just very weird to me that I'm like, okay, but he was already sober for like a year and a half and maybe he would have stayed sober. Maybe he wouldn't have. I remember my dad trying to get sober. I think that was the third time I remember him trying to get sober through my lifetime. But yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. Yeah. It's a whole thing. So I can't imagine what, I'm not even going to try and put (laughs) myself in your shoes. I witnessed it, but it is nowhere near the same thing. Mm -hmm. If you were, if you saw someone going through what you and your siblings did, I'm just going to focus on you and your siblings Mm -hmm. here. What advice would you give them for getting through the next few years? In the beginning, what you need is like, very practical help 
because you are not very good at taking care of yourself. So you need like a lot of people coming over um, and just helping you. And you need people to do that without really having their hand held, which you were able to do because we've been friends for so long. But a lot of people will kind of like send that like, oh, what can I do text? And that'll kind of be the end of it. And what you actually need is someone to come over and say, here, I made you this food. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, that very practical stuff in the beginning where you're like, here's food. I made it for you. And like the friends that would come over and not only be like, here's food, but would be like, I have chopped up food. I have put it in front of your face. You have to eat it yeah. now. It's very helpful. And then I think being recognizant that the first couple of weeks are going to be really hard, but it's not, that's not the only time it's hard. Um, it kind of keeps being hard. So I think there's kind of like an interesting balance you have to play where you kind of keep inviting the person to things and, and you keep giving them support and you keep trying to like involve yourself in their life, but also you're patient with them when they're not able to do that. So another Victoria example is you invited me and Steph to your wedding and we came, it was the first thing we, it was like, I think three months after my dad died. It was the first thing me and Steph had been to like a social event. It was weeks. It, oh, was, it was only it was like weeks a week after after you. Oh God. Okay. Even more dramatic. Um, so we came because we wanted to be good friends, but I think within an hour I was literally hiding behind your couch with my bra off because I was like, I want to be a good friend, but also I'm very sad and this bra is very uncomfortable. I've been in jail. I was like, how is the bra related? <laughs> it was very uncomfortable. It was a strapless bra. Women with boobs as large as ours should yeah, not wear strapless They should bras. not wear strapless bras because what was hard, me and my siblings, who I was not naming before, was that... We were, for, like, it was the first bad thing that had happened to a parent, really. Like, yeah. we didn't know anyone else whose parents had died. We didn't really know anyone that had gone through something that's going to, like, change your life that significantly. And so what we got was a lot of people kind of being like, oh my god, aren't you over this yet? And, and we weren't. And we also got a lot of people who I think wanted to be there for us, but didn't know how. And so, you know how like, like if your friend gets dumped, you're kind of like, oh my God. And then you like sit down and you get drunk and you talk about like all the worst things like men have ever done to you. It's like people wanted to do that with us, but they didn't have the experience. So instead they'd be sitting down with us and they'd be like, I know just what you're going through. My boyfriend's hamster died and it was very sad for all of us. And you'd just be like, bitch. Um... So I think, I don't know, I don't know how to turn that into practical advice. Like mostly like, don't, you know what? Google, Google things not to say to someone after someone they love have died and don't say those things. Don't say, oh, they're in a better place. Cause like I'm an atheist and lots of other people are too. Or even if they aren't, they maybe don't believe that heaven's a better place than being with them. So how do you feel about the question? How are you doing? How are you feeling? Cause I remember... Someone in your family <laughs> reacting very negatively and awkwardly to that question. Yes. That felt awful. Yes. Um, you know, I think, I think this is similar to what we were talking about with people's gender and sexuality where everyone's going to be different. So I think knowing the person that you're trying to support and what they would need and listening to what they've expressed is important. For me, I think that was, that was an important question because a lot of people... Um, when my dad died, really wanted to know how my mom was doing. They re they would kind of be like, oh my God, and like, how's your mom handling it? And then that would be the whole conversation. And then because I'm the oldest child, it would be a lot of like, well, and then how are your sister and brother handling it? Um, and there weren't really a lot of people that I had in my life that were able to ask how I was doing. 
And the people that were my age, like my friends, were were very unequipped to ask that. They were way too scared of the emotions that were going to come out. Uh, like one of my best friends at the time, uh, when we sent him <laughs> the Facebook message that my dad had died, sent back the like symbol. <laughs> And we still razz them about it. It's very funny. Uh, but I think a lot of times people are at, scared to ask, how are you doing? <laughs> because they're scared of what the answer is going to be. And that's fair. And I think I think it's important to know yourself. <laughs> it's okay. It's, it's pretty great. I'm sorry I didn't know that story. It needs to be written into a book. Right? Because <laughs> it's like the worst thing you could do. You could possibly do. Accidentally. And like... It's like when you send a text and you're like, mm-hmm. no, 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 I want it back, I yeah. want it back, I want it back. And it was like a long, it was like a long, beautiful, like, message like, Kevin Potter died surrounded by his friends and family. Like, it was like basically an obituary and he was just like, like, <laughs> but he maintains it was a mistake. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> that one's good. But yeah, I think people are scared to ask how you're doing. And I think it's also worth asking yourself if you're actually equipped to handle the answer. So... Don't ask if you're not going to be able to sit there and really listen to the person because that's going to make them feel crappy. But I think it's important to ask and be able to like sit with those feelings. And I think, again, for me, something that was really helpful that people did and that I try to continue to do is like before a big conversation even gets underway, just kind of be like, like give, give someone options, right? Just kind of be like, you know, do you kind of want to talk about your feelings? Do you want me to give you advice? Do you want me to like something one of my friends did at the time that was very helpful is she would just kind of come over and I would be very depressed and very sad and she would just kind of sit near me while I did that. So like I would be in a Netflix coma and she would just kind of be there lovingly from afar because I was not able to talk about my feelings in any real way. I was just a zombie, but it was nice to have someone else there while I was a zombie. And then I knew if I wanted to talk about it, I could, but I didn't have to. Yeah. What about like big miles? Like all the firsts, the Mm -hmm. first year. Yes. How do you, do you just, do you avoid things? Do you try to make events different than they were in the past? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, it depends. My mom, my mom puts a lot of, um, importance and emphasis on events and dates. Like for her, that's a really big deal. The anniversaries and the time he died and all of that. Like that's a big thing for her. Holidays. Holidays. Yeah. For me, that's, that's often less important. Like I kind of get waylaid by grief at random times. Although I will say like Father's Day is a unique and interesting hell, but it is for lots of people who don't have dads or have shitty relationships with their dads. So whatever. I found a lot of power in reclaiming events. Like um, Christmas was a really big deal for my family because we we were super close. We've always been super close. And Christmas was one of our favorite holidays. But a lot of what we used to do on Christmas Eve, it didn't make sense to do with my dad anymore because he used to read us Twas the Night Before Christmas. Even when we were all in our 20s, like we'd all sit on his lap and he'd read us the book aloud. And that was like really beautiful. And you're all very tall. We're all very tall people. Yeah, I'm one. Yeah, and he was very tall. We all just squished right in there, you know, and he'd like hang up our stockings and we'd watch It's a Wonderful Life. And so the first year after he died, when we weren't totally sure what to do, we like tried to watch a home video of him reading us that novel. And that was just fresh fucking hell. Like that was, that was just like rubbing salt in the wound and watching It's a Wonderful Life. We're like, well, this is horrible. 
So what we did instead was we tried to kind of find a balance of like new traditions that still honored my dad. So we do like, um, we do like the, like the paper lanterns, um, as a thing we do, we do this, <laughs> this thing that's going to sound not great because my dad was an alcoholic, but it is great. And where we have like a shot competition. So like everyone in my family has to make like a shot that's inspired by my dad and you like, um, make a vert you make the shot for everyone and then you give like a little speech about my dad and then you toast and then at the end we like pick winners and whatever we've all just to clarify though got mm -hmm. fairly healthy relationships with alcohol yes yeah. yes <laughs> just to clarify yes. first of all all of us have me and my sister and brother all have fairly healthy relationships with alcohol and we're all very cognizant of what it means to be the child of an alcoholic and to come from a family of alcoholics uh, and also, I think it's worth clarifying that as alcoholics go, my dad was pretty great. <laughs> my dad was super fun when he was drunk. He was the life of every party. He was like a... But also high functioning. High functioning, yeah. Had a I had no idea. Yeah. Like, I had no idea. Yeah. Great job. Great marriage. Great relationship with his kids. Like, not all alcoholics are like lifetime movie alcoholics, which <laughs> I think is worth recognizing yeah. like I always say when I think I'm the one that's going to become an alcoholic out of the three of us because I think my sister is like too goals oriented like I think she'll be fine uh, but I think I'll be like one of those moms you see on like Desperate Housewives or something who just gets who just has like one glass of wine and then and then it's like a couple bottles of wine and I think I'm gonna be one of those like mom alcoholics who's like making cupcakes but also really drunk you saw me upstairs earlier tonight, right? When my child was having a meltdown. <laughs> Open the cider. Have a drink. You'd be a terrible alcoholic because it only takes you like two things to get drunk. I have had two drinks and I'm totally fine. I would just like to clarify, but that's been over like a three hour period. Mm -hmm. Okay. Maybe it doesn't take you two to be drunk, but it takes you like four to be drunk and five to be too drunk. <laughs> and then like from the bathroom be like, I feel sick. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't going to say that, but yeah. Know thyself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that was really cool for us like now christmas eve is like a really nice thing i think another thing that's interesting to recognize about grief well there, there's so many things about grief we could talk about for like eight hours but for me the actual day of what's happening is nowhere near as bad as the emotional hangover so like i can get through his birthday I can be like, oh my God, it's dad's birthday and I can prepare for his birthday. And then, you know, some years I'm like, I, some, like the first couple of years I was just kind of a burrito. And then for a couple of years I would like, I'd, I'd make like food from recipes he'd given me and I'd watch favorite movies and I would just kind of try to celebrate him. And that was lovely. And then last year was it his birthday. There was, I think it was his birthday. It was either his birthday or father's day. And I just, like, I just had shit to do. Like I wanted to celebrate it, but I didn't even have the time or space to celebrate it because I was like, I actually can't afford to be sad and have like a three day emotional hangover from this because I have to do report cards, yeah. which I think is part of like the trajectory of grief. But you kind of have to know that like that, that day is whatever, but it's usually the days after that where you're like, Oh God, I have the world's worst emotional hangover now. Yeah. So that was a fun surprise. And you did counseling? Yes, uh, we did family counseling, which was a thing. <laughs> so you as an individual did counseling? Or? Um, I did, but not really for my grief. I went to two counselors for my grief who I hated and I did not find helpful, which is nothing against counseling. I think you just you need to, to find, find the right, right match. Yeah. It's like a relationship. And yeah. Yeah. But the counselor that I, the therapist that I see now, I actually ended up getting therapy because when my when my dad died I kind of like paused my brain because I was in like sad griefy depression-yville 
And so a nice side effect was that a lot of my symptoms of what I thought was anxiety and now know is OCD kind of simmered down or, or I didn't recognize them as symptoms. Um, and so when I kind of was getting, you know, quote unquote, getting better and going back out into the real world a little bit more, all of those symptoms kind of came back full force. And at that point I was like 25 and I was just kind of doing the whole, it's not cute to be broken anymore. Like I'm not Meredith Grey. I don't get to just wander around being all like sad and twisty and dark. I need to get my shit together. And I found that although I obviously still have a lot of stuff that I'm working through with having like a dead dad and all the, all the results of that for me the OCD and the anxiety were the bigger, bigger piece that I needed to be addressed. So I, I still go to therapy for that um, and will continue to go to therapy for that. But I don't think, I don't know if I'll go to therapy for my dad. They, mm-hmm. It's not my favorite kind of therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, that, but it goes to show though that like it is so different for everyone. Mm-hmm. And, it, and give yourself the time and the space. Yeah. And figure out what you need and... Like, I have, I'm also very blessed. I have lots of... And I'm not saying friends are the same as therapy, but I have a lot of friends with a lot of, like, really high emotional intelligence who are willing to do that emotional labor of listening to me talk about my dad or about how that changed the relationships in my life after he died or any of that stuff. So I don't feel... I don't feel like that is a thing that I am repressing yeah. or that I am not dealing with. I think it's just a long, slow, drawn-out process. And I'm sure... I think when it'll probably come up will be... Like maybe when I'm having kids of my own, or maybe if I do start grappling with my own issues of like substance use or, you know, whatever, whatever. Maybe I'll be 30 and be like, it's not cute to be broken. You thought you were not broken at 26, but turns out you're still being a dick. Yeah. Yeah. So. So I'm going to wrap up with the five questions that we ask. Well, it's actually going to be four in your case, but five questions that I ask all the interviewees. Okay. It's four because usually I ask about books, but we already talked about books. Already talked about books. What are the projects or the things that get you really fired up in a good way? Excited. (laughs) That's such a good question. I get super nerdily into anything like book related. So uh, like the reading spreadsheet that I have, like I do really enjoy, I have like a reading spreadsheet to check what I'm reading and also a spreadsheet where I catalog all the books that I want to read, which are also color-coded for like diversity and stuff. So I get super into that, but I'm not really a projecty person. Like I love lesson yeah. planning. Like topics that get you like pumped. Basically everything we talked about, man. Yeah. Like gender, sexuality, uh, the patriarchy. I love yelling about the patriarchy. I can turn anything into a patriarchy problem. Breeding, kids, like my babies. I could talk about my babies for hours. Nice. And why they're so awesome. Do you have a f- <laughs> do you have a favorite quote or words that you live by kind of thing? Um, with my the one of my favorite quotes that really only applies to me like as a teacher, but I think it's important, is that kids who are loved at home come to school to learn, and kids who are not come to school to be loved, and that's kind of my like daily mantra for working with the babies, and then my my just general mantra for like not murdering people is everybody does the best they can with what they have. That is a thing. Word. (laughs) Yeah. What would you consider the best life lesson you've learned or advice that you've been given? I think my dad raised me with a very healthy level of people who don't like it can pound salt, which has been very important to me. Um, And I think like... That's important as like a queer person and like a woman and a lot of other things. But I think also in general, like just 
fuck people, right? Like, like in my family, you can kind of, you can get away with a lot, but you can't, you can't be dishonest and you can't fuck with the potters. Like those are kind of the two, oops, you can't, <laughs> well, it's already out there. Are we um, not putting your name that's, on? Well, no, 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 oh, that's right. I did say my last name. I was just trying not to say my yeah. siblings' first names. But yeah, so that's kind of what I try to think about a lot of the time is just that it, it, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Like you should really only care about the people you love and who bring you joy and who like want to help you make the world better. But all the people that are just kind of being like shitty and homophobic and judgy and mean and like, like just want to be, make your life worse. Like, why would you care about those people? Why would you try to shape your life to be like those people want your life to be like, that's, that's what makes everything small and sad. Gross. <laughs> so I actually have, um, my dad had like, Johnny Cash has this like great photo inside one of his records where he's like giving the finger and it reminds me so much of my dad. He was giving the finger in almost every photo we ever took of him. Um, so yeah, it's that the was a fun uh, carousel of photos. Yeah, a montage of yeah. So that's the background on my phone lock screen, uh, particularly when I'm dealing with people that are maybe causing me extra stress in my life I just kind of look at that and I just like picture my dad being like tell him to pound salt and I'm like yes pound salt I've everyone else can pound salt the yeah. so last question mm -hmm. Nicole Victoria what does it mean to you to live your best life um to me the idea of like living your best life is a, it's so cheesy. This is such an interview answer, but I do think living your best life is about like making the world a better place for other humans. Like, I think that we all have a responsibility to be not kind. I think a lot of the time when you kind of like preach that whole like, oh, we should be kind, we should be loving. What that actually does is makes us feel like we can't be aggressive to like our oppressors and we can't throw bricks and do whatever. Um, so I don't know if kind's the right word, but I think you're like on this planet to change it and to make it better and to leave behind something that you're proud of. And for me, leaving behind something that I'm proud of means like making other people's lives better. So like my kids and like my babies, my students, like that's, that's really important to me. And like educating people about like gender and sexual identity, that's really important to me. <laughs> so, so I think for me, that's the best, the best thing you can do. And like volunteer, man, everyone should be volunteering more. Just as a random FYI, one of my favorite things to do is to get drunk and cry about how there's not enough men volunteering for big brothers, big sisters. There's like all these women, but there's no men. And there's just all these men who don't have dads and then just like are really sad about it and then grow up and don't change the cycle. If you're a man and you're listening to this, go volunteer for big brothers, big sisters. That was a random <laughs> tangent, but I'm very passionate about it. I appreciate that random tangent. And with that... <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. <laughs>
it really put a lot of things into context for me and I am so grateful to have Nicole as a friend. Now, if you want to find details on all the books that she recommended, you can go to today's show notes, which are girltrieslife.com forward slash podcast forward slash 38 for 38. Now we are going to get back to regular programming for next week. I promise you're not going to have to wait another two weeks for it. Next week's episode, we are joined by the author of Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When Nobody Has the Time. And that is Bridget Schulte. And she is a Washington Post and New York Times bestselling author. I was so pleased to have her join us. So if you are someone that feels stressed and overwhelmed with your life, we talk about why that's happening in the first place and strategies to really improve your life. So it's definitely not one to miss if you are feeling the modern day and crunch the way the rest of us are. So hopefully my voice is back to normal for next week. But uh, take care, guys. Lots of love. And remember, if you want to make a change in your life, it all depends on the action that you take today. So what is that one little thing, that one little step that you are going to take to get closer to your dreams? Take care.